Well, it's been a while, but I'm glad that we're back at it. We're going to turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter tonight. It's a really grand place to be beginning again uh, the study of this book, God's Word. Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And I'll surprise you a bit, those of you who know my Bible study technique. I'm only going to read three verses tonight. We're only going to study one of them. And we'll be doing well if we finish it. Okay, Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verses 1, 2, and 3. Hear God's word. It's written for you. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. For therein the elders had witness born to them. By faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God, so that what is seen hath not been made out of things which appear. And thus far, God's word. Let's review for a moment. The book of Hebrews is written in what kind of situation? I want you to talk to me here. Be a good class. And and those of you who have been studying Hebrews with me over the last uh, year and a half or so, why was this book written? What general purpose does it serve? It is an exhortation of what sort? Exhortation to continue in the faith. Who was tempted not to? <laughs> yes. Although, of course, the title has been supplied, what do we know from the historical background and indications given within the text itself, hints that we have, what kind of temptation was being faced by the congregation or congregations to which this epistle was written? Temptation to do what? Willie? That's right. To return to the law, to return to the Old Testament shadows, to return to Judaism. And the book of Hebrews is written to show the superiority of the new covenant, and particularly the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, over all that the old covenant had to offer. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets, superior to the Old Testament priesthood, superior to the Old Testament temple. He's superior to angels. And on and on the book goes, driving home the exhortation, do not fall back. Do not, uh, having come this far, now backslide, because backsliding will be unto perdition. Okay, we come to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Notice what the 39th verse of chapter 10 has said, but we are not of them that shrink back unto perdition, but of them that have faith under the saving of the soul. So you see the 10th verse, excuse me, the 10th chapter ends with a verse that really drives home kind of the key theme. We will not be those that fall back from the faith, shrink unto perdition as it were, but rather press on in faith to the saving of the soul. And then the whole 11th chapter opens up, of course, which is a, a beautiful uh, expression of the nature of active faith in its illustration. Notice how verse 1 speaks of the nature of faith and the special emphasis on the kind of faith that um, 
we have to find in the 11th chapter illustrated. Verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. Faith is not walking by sight. Faith is a matter of trusting the Word of God, and when He promises something, even when it's not before our very eyes, living as though it were. It is the firm assurance of things not yet seen. Now, I gave a couple of lessons before my three-month series in Bible study ended last time on the nature, the extensive and systematic nature of faith as it's presented in the Bible. A number of aspects of that question probably seemed like a fairly dry philosophical lesson to many of you, I'm sure, but I did that so that, one, we would understand that Hebrews is looking at a particular element, a particular aspect of faith, specifically that aspect which trusts the Word of God more than our own senses. Okay? So we see the nature of faith in verse 1, and then verse 2 shows us that this chapter will be a series of illustrations of the active use of that kind of faith, as we're told, for therein the elders had witness born to them, or by means of faith, those of old had witness born to them. I love that verse because it purposely plays on the two-way nature of the testimony of faith. Faith always gives a testimony two different ways. Of course, faith is a testimony to God, isn't it? That's what faith is all about. It's the profession of and the visible evidence that I believe God's promise. I submit to him and I live for him. But you see, faith also is a testimony to us who follow God in that way. It tells us something about the God we serve and as well it tells us something about those who serve him. For by this faith, those of old, the elders, had witness born to them. And we should hear that witness. Okay, chapter 11, Hebrews is something of the uh, hall of fame of faith, to be sure. Naturally, it's not a hall of fame in the human terms in which we might have a baseball hall of fame and we simply look at the athletic ability of somebody and it goes no further. It's a hall of fame that points us to the faithfulness of humans so that we might glorify the God that they trusted. The two-way nature of the testimony of faith. And then we come to verse 3, the beginning of the author's long series of illustrations of what faith entails, what active faith will mean. And he says, By faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God, so that what is seen hath not been made out of things which appear. And this will be the verse that we study tonight. It's interesting that the author already telling us he's going to show us the elders, those of old who had testimony borne to them by their active faith in God, actually begins with the scriptural doctrine of creation. Why does he do that? The fourth, excuse me, the fourth verse says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. The fifth verse, By faith Enoch was translated, and so forth. The seventh verse, By faith Noah, the eighth verse, by faith, Abraham, and on and on it goes. We see after the third verse a series of illustrations of individuals who lived by faith, who actively obeyed God out of their trust in him. 
Why is verse 3 in there then? Or as some commentators have said, why isn't verse 3, verse 2, and then verse 2 becomes verse 3? He says something about having faith in God who created, and then he will say, the elders of old had witness born to them, and tells us about the elders. As it stands, verse 2 introduces the elders, then we have this parenthesis, it appears, verse 3, then verse 4 begins telling us about the elders, one by one. Well, I want to suggest that the reason is so obvious is that the author is looking at, for his testimony to faith, he's looking specifically at a book called the Old Testament. And so it's like he picks up the book and he says, now, I want to tell you about faith. Now, here's where we begin. And he opens up the book, and where do you open up to? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Although his purpose is to show us active faith, in the elders of old, when you open the Old Testament, you begin with creation. And so the very roughness of that outline points to the genuineness of it being put together. We might smooth it out. We might talk about creation and then the elders and then talk about the specific elders. The author says, by faith, the elders, and now I've got to go to the Old Testament, and the first thing he opens to is what? Creation. Doctrine of creation is there because it's at the beginning of the Old Testament. But I want to suggest, and I will say more about this later, that the doctrine of creation may very well be a necessary key to the faith exercised by the elders that follow. And that if we don't live in an age that manifests the faith of the Old Testament saints, it's because we simultaneously live in an age that's lost its confidence in the doctrine of creation. So let's look at verse 3 more in detail. I'd like to give you a literal rendition of the Greek, I think we have time to do that tonight since uh, we're only looking at one verse. Uh, this will come close to some of your translations, it will deviate from others, so you might follow along with what you have. Literally, word by word, the Greek says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that not out of things which appear did the things we see come into being so that not out of things which appear did the things we see come into being or uh, come to pass become how does the verse open by faith by faith we understand now the chapter we've already seen talks about what Old Testament saints did but here the author begins with what? What we do. By faith, we understand. This opening formula, by faith, will recur 18 more times in the chapter. I mean, anyone who can't outline this chapter, I mean, and catch the little flags, by faith this, by faith that, stuff was just either doesn't know how to read or knows nothing about outlining. The author is real clear in this one. Over and over again, it becomes almost a, a liturgical refrain, by faith, by faith. It's as though I should say, how did Abel do what he did? And you would say, by faith. And how did Abraham do what he did? You'd say, by faith. And we would learn thereby to act in faith ourselves toward God. And I'm going to take a few moments. Um, you'll notice I put up on the board a little bit of an outline of what I want to cover with you tonight. First, the nature and importance of faith. That's what I'm looking at right now, the importance of faith. By faith, 
the saints of old did these various works that they performed. After we get done with that, we'll look at the importance of God's creative word. Then I want to have a discussion, this will be kind of fun, of invisible things and what people have done with this verse and talking about invisible things. Then we'll discuss the doctrine of creation from nothing, what we call in technical circles creation ex nihilo, the Latin, out of nothing. And finally, I'd like to discuss the refutation of evolution, uh, which we should be guided into if we believe this verse. So first of all, the nature and importance of faith. In verse 3, we read, By faith we understand. The word used in the Greek here for understanding is the most common word for the use of the intellect, the rational use of our mental powers. By faith we understand. We use our minds. We come to an understanding. By faith we do that. And that's crucial to me, not only because of my interest in apologetics and philosophy, but because we live in an age that is so irrational and has such a mystical understanding of religion. The author begins by telling us faith is not credulity. Faith is not some kind of blind acceptance of whatever. Faith is not the sacrifice of one's rational ability, although it may be the sacrifice of one's rational authority, it is not the sacrifice of one's rational ability. Faith is not contrary to intellect, because by faith we intellectualize something. By faith we understand, the author says. And so if nothing else, the, the verse reassures us tonight that our faith as Christians is not something emotional, blind, empty, or irrational. It's a matter of understanding. Okay, the world says faith means a leap in the dark, giving up understanding. The Bible says faith is the road to understanding. What's the opposite then? Those who don't have faith don't have understanding. You need to have the courage to say that and to act that way when you defend the Christian faith. Those who do not have Christian faith it's not as though they have understanding or reason on one side and we have faith on the other and it's a war between reason and faith. We want to say those who don't have faith don't have reason either. That they really stand over against understanding. It's not as though they have understanding versus our faith. They have unreasonably used their minds because they don't have faith. The author of this epistle certainly is on our side, or is on the side of what I'm saying, because he opens by saying, by faith we understand, not by faith we give up understanding. Faith is not unintelligible. Reason operates. And so let's, let's try to think of reason as a tool. Man's mental ability, his intellectual ability, is a tool. Faith is that which operates the tool. And the difference between us as Christians and those who aren't Christians is not the difference between faith and reason there, but it's the difference between which faith operates man's reason. The tool of intellect will be used by people of other faith commitments who have faith, say, in evolution. They have faith in a godless universe, faith in themselves, on and on. We, of course, have understanding, and our understanding is controlled by faith 
in God's creative, powerful, and unfailing word. Okay, let's move on then to the importance of God's creative word in terms of our Christian faith. By faith, we understand that the worlds have been formed by the word of God. What was the agent of creation? In what way did God bring about this physical world in which we live? What's that? That's right. He commanded it into being. God spoke, and it was so. Um, I have to tell you, as much as I have known that truth just spoken by Bob for years now, and as much as I have studied it in depth from a theological and even philosophical standpoint, it always thrills me when I come to that. That's exciting. You know, there's a little bit of that in all of us. We like magic, don't we? That's a testimony to something about the way God made us. Now, of course, most magicians in our day and throughout history are really uh, following an alien faith and are distorting that, um, well, that uh, characteristic within us that um, we like to see something said and it accomplishes something in the world. And, of course, the magician says abracadabra and poof, things happen, right? Well, that doesn't really happen for human beings. We can only fake it. But it's true for God. God says it. He doesn't say abracadabra, obviously. He doesn't have to go through incantations. But when God speaks, it happens. Well, that's awesome. We stand back and wonder about that. A God who can speak things into being. The agent of creation was God's spoken word. Turn to Genesis 1.3. Notice how it just kind of jumps out at you, having thought about this in terms of Hebrews. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 5, and God called the light day. In darkness he called night. And God said, now this will be repeated seven times in Genesis, the first chapter. And God said, and you notice there's no resistance to that. Okay. We all know what it is to have some fancy new device, whether it's remote control on the TV or a computer or tape recorder, and we have trouble making it work the way it's supposed to. God didn't have any trouble making it work. God spoke, and it happened. By faith we believe that, that the agent of creation was God's spoken word. Psalm 33.6, the psalmist reflects on the same truth, Psalm 33, at the sixth verse. By the word of Jehovah were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. The anthropomorphism is graphic. God's word was given, and of course there is no word without breath coming out of your mouth. We don't usually see that because it's invisible, but you know, you put your hand up there and you can feel the breath coming out of your mouth, and instruments measure that. By the breath of his mouth, by the speaking of God's word, the world came into being. Psalm 33, 9, For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Where in the New Testament do we 
see a reflection of this biblical truth, that the Word of God is the agent of creation. John 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, because there we learn that Jesus Christ, the second uh, person of the Trinity, God the Son, created the world, and his name is the Word of God. John chapter 1, the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that hath been made. So the Word of God, God's own speaking, and then actually the second person of the Trinity called the Word specifically is the agent of creation. So we see the nature of fiat here. God did not look down and find this world, you know, it was kind of gooey, yucky um, matter, and then fashion it like clay into a world. God didn't have to get his hands dirty, if I could use that idiom, to make the world. He simply said it, and it happened. Fiat creation. According to the author of Hebrews, the Word of God is an active and powerful agent. We've already seen that in Hebrews 1, verse 3. Turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews 1, 3, where we read. Well, actually, I'll read verse 2. God, at the end of these days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What keeps all things going in the world? Don't say the laws of nature. You say the laws of nature, you've bought into a secular conception of reality. The laws of nature don't keep the world running, don't keep things held together. The Bible tells us that that which upholds all things is the word of his power. The word of God, the powerful word of God, is what makes the universe hold together and keep running the way that it does. In Hebrews 4.12, we see another testimony to the active and powerful nature of God's Word. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you're um, truly a Christian tonight, born again by the Spirit of God, with eyes enlightened, to read God's Word, you know the experience that I'm referring to when I say sometimes you're reading your Bible and you just feel the thrust of conviction down to the very you know, pit of your being, into your heart of hearts, we might say, comes the convicting nature of God's Word. The Word of God's like that. It thrusts right into you. There's something about this Word that you don't get when you read Hemingway. You know, when you read Homer, there's nothing like that power in any other book. But the Word of God is active and living and powerful. And so now we can add that in the author of Hebrews, in the conception of the author of Hebrews, the Word of God not only keeps the universe running, not only actively drives home God's message to our hearts, but the Word of God made everything that exists. By faith, we understand this, that the worlds were created 
by the Word of God. God's Word, which originally created the world, is also the agent of recreation in the salvation of men. In order to understand the doctrine of redemption, you need to have as a background the doctrine of creation, because redemption is a kind of what? Recreation. Now, why do I say that? Look at 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Seeing that it is the God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, who shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to understand what it is to be regenerated, to be born again, to have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ dawn within you? Remember, it's the same God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, a reference to Genesis 1, let there be light. The same God who said that is the one who says within you, Let there be light. God is the creator and he is the recreator of his people. 1 Peter 1.23 also speaks of the Word of God being active in our recreation. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Having been born again, begotten again, actually, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides. Here's that living, abiding, active, powerful Word of God which is the source of our regeneration. We are begotten again by God's Word. We were first created by God's Word, and now we are secondly created, born again, created again, or recreated by the Word of God. Now, why am I stressing this? Because, as I have already indicated earlier, it seems to me that the author of Hebrews sets up the 11th chapter not simply to follow the order of the Old Testament text, beginning with creation, proceeding to Abel and all the rest, but the author wants to uh, suggest to us that the Word of God which made the world is the Word which issued the promises believed by the Old Testament saints, that they trusted and acted upon God's Word, that very Word which made the world's. Note the examples which follow in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll just take one paragraph here, verses 8 to 13. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out unto a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, he became a sojourner in the land of promise, as in a land not his own, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for the city which has the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received power to conceive seed when she was past age, since she counted him faithful who had promised. Wherefore also there sprang of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of heaven in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them and greeted them, from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The idea is that God spoke a promise, and these people believed the promise, and that belief, that faith, and the promises of God led them to act obediently. 
but it's the same God who spoke those promises who originally spoke and made the world. Their trust in the promises of God, which they did not yet see in front of them, was born of their confidence that God who spoke those words created the world. And if he created the world, he'd have no trouble fulfilling his promises. I think uh, some of you have heard me say, I'm reflecting what others have said before me, it's not a thought original to me by any means, but uh, I think it is true that as wondrous as the doctrine of Christ's resurrection is, it pales in in to insignificance in a sense against the wonder of the Incarnation. That if you can believe that God became man, you should have no trouble believing God could raise the dead. In the same way, if you could believe God could speak this whole universe into existence, you shouldn't have any trouble believing his promises. When God promises Abraham that he'll give him the land and give him a seed, Abraham didn't have any, prom any problem with that because Abraham believed that this is the God who made the world out of nothing. And so this faith in the Creator enables us to believe the promises of the Creator because his word is what's behind both creation and promise. And so do we wonder why believers today do not act with the boldness and the fidelity of those mentioned in this chapter? I do. I wonder why I don't. I wonder why you don't. I wonder why Christians in general don't have the same kind of reputation for acting in faith boldly with fidelity toward God. Well, it could well be that this is related to a lack of faith in God, the Creator, because in our generation, of course in our century really, we have stripped away, we haven't, but others have stripped away confidence in the doctrine of creation. And I think when you do that, you undermine the strength of faith to act confidently in obedience to God's word and promise. You shake the Christian's conviction about creation, and you shake the Christian's conviction about God's reliability in general. Can he really do what he said? Maybe we better hedge our bets a bit. Maybe we better not academically put our necks out on the line for the things said in the Bible. Maybe we ought to kind of, you know, play it cool and, and make sure that the world doesn't think we are too much of uh, uh, fools to believe the Word of God. So, the nature and importance of faith and the importance of God's creative Word. We find these right here in the opening of verse 3 by faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God but now I'd like to talk about invisible things and let me explain to you why there is um, a misleading translation of this verse that those of you who use the revised standard version will have in your Bibles and which others uh, have reflected too, although I've not done an exhaustive survey of the number of places where you find it. A number of scholars have tried to defend this, and the translation that I want to warn you against says the following. Listen closely. Um, so that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear. So that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear. This is a great illustration of the importance of putting the negative particle where it belongs in a sentence. 
You change the place of the word not, and you change the meaning of the whole expression. Here are the two options, in case I'm going too fast. One says, so that the things which we see were not made out of things which appear. The other says, so that the things which we see were made out of things which do not appear. That is, is the author saying that the visible world did not come from the visible world, but from something other than the visible world? Or is the author saying that the visible world came out of invisible stuff? Am I still going too fast? Does that confuse some of you? Does the not modify the verb, or does the not modify the object of the verb, so that the things which appear were not made out of things which are visible, or is he saying the things which appear were made out of things which are not visible? Because if he's saying the latter, that the things which are visible were made out of things which were not visible, then you have a doctrine of invisible things to deal with, okay? The suggestion is that invisible entities were the material for God's forming of the visible world. That invisible things were the stuff, if you will, out of which God made the worlds. Okay, so let's see if we can't discuss as followers of God's word our doctrine of invisible things tonight. Do we believe in the reality of invisible things, Doug? We do. Even though we may not like this translation, it is the case that there are invisible realities. Let me give you a good example. 2 Corinthians 4.18. 2 Corinthians 4.18. Paul says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul there says the invisible things are eternal. The visible things are temporal. So did Paul believe in invisible things? He sure did. And he said they're eternal. They're very important, very reliable. Of course, he does use a paradoxical expression, doesn't he? He says we look at the things which are not seen. We look at the things that can't be looked at, and they are eternal. Uh, I don't think this slipped Paul. I, he enjoyed doing that kind of thing, because that provokes our attention to what he is saying. Paul says, we understand that there are invisible things, and they are eternal in their nature. So Christians do believe in eternal things that are invisible. Who can give me the most obvious example of an invisible reality that's eternal? Chris? God himself. God is the spirit and has not a body like men. Isn't that what our children's catechism says? God cannot be seen. God is invisible, and yet he's very real. But you know, as Christians, we believe in other things that are invisible too. And I can't give you a, a full-blooded you know, lesson in metaphysics tonight, but I can give you a couple of pedestrian examples that are easy for us to follow, whether you're professional philosophers or not. The next time you get into an argument with somebody who says the only real things are things that you can see or touch, you know, you can perceive, 
then um, you might ask them about two things in particular, names and love. Most people believe in names and most people believe in love. And if they really want to be sophisticated, I'm not going to get into this tonight, you might talk about numbers too, see if they believe in numbers. But let's think about names and love and to a certain extent about numbers. Has anyone ever seen a name? Now, my philosophy class is always anxious to jump in and they think, oh, we finally caught Dr. Bronson. That's an easy one, you know. I say, well, sure. I put my name on my paper. There it is. And I say, oh, that's your name? That's, that's right. That's exactly right. I pick up the paper, I destroy it, throw it away, say, you don't have a name now. Oh, yes, I do, because I can write it again. I say, oh. So apparently what I destroyed is not your name, but what? A representation of your name. Or, if you will, an instantiation of your name. There is something that is your name that exists totally apart from whether it's being uttered by anybody at any time, whether it's written on the blackboard or a piece of paper, I mean, it may well be that the name Kathy Bonson doesn't appear on any document anywhere, and yet Kathy certainly has a name, doesn't she? Okay, so most people believe in names, and yet names are something invisible, though they can become visible. How about love? Somebody says, I don't believe in invisible things. They say, well, I guess you don't believe in love. And their first response is going to be, no, here's an example of love, a mother hugging her child or comforting her child when he has a scraped knee or something. There's love. Is that right? So that when that's not happening, love doesn't exist. Is that right? Oh, no, no. That was only one what? Example or instantiation of love. But there are many. Now, what if it so happened there was, let's just say, three seconds that go by where in all the universe nobody was doing something like that? Okay? No one was kissing someone else. No one was comforting someone else. And for three seconds, there were no examples of love. Anywhere. Would we say love no longer was real or wasn't real for those three seconds? No, we wouldn't. And yet you can't see love. You can see examples of love, and you can see examples of names, but you can't see names and you can't see love. And those of you who want to go further, the same can be said of numbers. You can see examples of numbers, two apples, two oranges, and so forth, but you can't see two. And yet to say that it's not real would make nonsense out of mathematics. Do Christians believe in invisible things? We certainly do. We're not embarrassed by that. We believe in an invisible God. We believe in the power of the love, and the name that he gives us, and on and on and on. We believe these things are real. However, we don't think that that's what Hebrews 11 is talking about. It's an incorrect translation to say that the visible world was made from things that do, not, that do not appear. That is to say, that the visible world was made from invisible things, like numbers, names, love, or better, um, what is generally considered a platonic view of the universe, where every particular thing in the world has a corresponding type or form that is outside of space and time. Of course, outside of is a metaphor, but the point is, a non-spatial and a non-temporal reality such as duckness. Huey, Dewey, and Louie may be out on the pond, but they are only examples or instances of duckness, which is not in time and space. Okay, And some people have thought, well, here, this verse proves that the created order, the world that appears, was made out of those invisible things, <laughs> those platonic forms. 
And uh, this is a good example of eisegesis, reading into the text your philosophy rather than getting your philosophy out of the text. You don't get anything like that in the text. But a little more credible notion, and I have to hurry along here, is that what Hebrews 1, 3 is referring to on this bad translation is really Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Okay, let's, let me give you the bad translation again, and then we'll go to Genesis 1-2 and see why people draw that connection. It is said that if Hebrews teaches that the things which appear have been made out of things which do not appear, that perhaps that takes us back to Genesis 1-2 where God created the world and it was what? Formless and void. And then he goes on, to fashion an organized world out of this. I'll begin at the first verse. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was waste and void, or formless and void, some of your translations will say. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's kind of like God takes this formless void, this nothing which can't be seen, and now he starts working on it. He kind of, you know, comes into the room where the erector set is just all chaotic, and he starts putting it together, and lo and behold, in seven days' time, he's made out of that messed up erector set a beautiful world. Okay. The world was formless and void. And so out of the invisible, God made the visible. Now, those of you who aren't falling asleep because of the lateness of the hour are probably saying, but Dr. Bonson, it doesn't say it was invisible. It doesn't say the earth was invisible. It just says it was waste and void. Now, probably Doug's the only one in the room who will appreciate this. You have to understand, though, that in the Arist Aristotelian tradition of philosophy, the world which we see and perceive by our senses is seen and perceived because it has form. Matter by itself can't be perceived. Matter by itself has no form by which we could hear, see, taste, touch it. And so if the world was formless, if the world was waste, then it was invisible. And uh, this is what the author of Hebrews is allegedly referring to. So the formless and void world of matter is that out of which God fashioned the world in six successive days. Problem is that the expression in Genesis means nothing of the sort, and I don't think you should import Aristotelian philosophy as your key to interpretation of it. That same expression in Hebrew, formless or waste and void, is found in Isaiah 45, verse 18, Please turn tape over at this time. World. The opposite of an inhabitable world is a world that is formless and void. Or in Jeremiah 4.23, there's a reference using this language to the waste result or the devastation, if you will, of divine judgment through alien armies as Jeremiah sees it. What happens when the alien armies come through? The world becomes uninhabitable. And so what Genesis 1-2 is telling us, and in this I'm following 
what Dr. Young of Westminster Seminary wrote a number of years ago in the Westminster Theological Journal. What we read in Genesis 1-2 is that at the very beginning when God created the world at the first stage of creation, it was not ready to be inhabited. It was formless and void. Not that it was chaos, not that it was evil, but it was simply not yet inhabitable. And so successively, God goes on in more you know, good creative acts like the original one, and the world that ends up is a world in which he can place man to inhabit it. And so what's being pointed to in Genesis 1-2 is a primitive, as yet undeveloped stage of the world, but it's not pointing to a chaos, much less an invisible chaos, or to something evil from which God then has to fight and develop a good world. So as Christians, we do believe in invisible things. We do not believe Hebrews 11.3 is referring to them, much less that it's referring to Genesis 1.2 and uh, trying to say that there is an invisible set of entities out of which God made the world. And yet we do believe the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Hebrews 11.3 teaches that the visible world had an invisible source. Now, why does it teach that? Because it denies that the visible world came out of anything visible. The source of the visible world is invisible. And what do you think that's a reference to? If it's not a reference to invisible platonic forms or the invisible chaos of Genesis 1-2, isn't it obvious that it's pointing to the invisible God himself and his creative power? The Word of God, which you cannot see, but which makes the worlds? I believe so. And yet, Hebrews 11.3 does not go so far as to identify this invisibility with nothingness. Gen uh, excuse me, Hebrews 11.3 does not teach the doctrine of creation ex nihilo itself. It simply teaches the doctrine of creation by the invisible power of God. But I would like to talk about creation ex nihilo for a moment and just make sure that we don't have a misconception of that. A lot of Christians have trouble and misunderstand it because they think of creation out of nothing. I know the best I could come up with when I was preparing this lesson is the idea of an empty closet. That once the closet was empty and then God put clothes in it and that the nothing out of which he created is that empty closet. And so there was nothingness, kind of like an openness waiting to be filled, and then God filled it. That isn't what creation out of nothing means. The God took the nothingness and filled it up, because that assumes that nothingness is a something. Now, this is beginning to sound like heady philosophy, I know. You know, Parmenides worried about whether nothing was something too. And uh, but in our own way, we we uh, we make nothing into something. <laughs> but of course, if nothing is something, then it's no longer nothing. Okay, nothing doesn't exist. It's not a way of saying there is this thing, nothing, and it fails to have the characteristic of existence. It's simply defining what nothing is. Nothing is not existing, okay? When God created from nothing, that is a way of saying 
that prior to God's creative act, nothing existed except God himself. Okay? So don't mentally conceive of there's God, then there's nothingness, the empty closet, and then God created and the closet was filled with a world and universe and so forth. Before God created, there wasn't anything but God, not even an empty nothingness next to God, as it were, much less uh, kind of a formless matter that he had to work upon to make the world. Now, is there a biblical basis for creation ex nihilo, even though Hebrews 11.3 doesn't go that far? Well, I think there is. Look at Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. And could somebody reassure me all the crashing and stuff that I'm hearing is not... It is down the hall, okay. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and what? Things invisible. I love it. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him and unto him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or by him all things consist. So the author of uh, Colossians, the Apostle Paul, says when it comes to the doctrine of creation, everything that was made, visible and invisible, was made by him. And without him, nothing could be made, and by him all things consist. He's before all things. Consequently, there can't be anything else besides him until he decided to make the world. It's visible and invisible features, both. Doctrine of creation out of nothing, understood as prior to the creative act there was nothing that existed except God, is taught in the Bible then. And the effect of this doctrine is to teach us that the created order is not an extension of God. The created order is not an extension of God. That's a valuable thing to remember. Because in our day and age, that's a prevalent heresy, that the world all around us is God. It's just kind of, you know, the extension of God's being. Or, if you will, the physical world is the body of God. You know, makes for interesting mystical poetry, makes for terrible theology. Moreover, the world about us was not based on pre-existing matter. Not only is it not an extension of God, but it is not something that was alongside of God that he then worked on and made into what we see now. For what does appear to our senses was not made out of things which appear. There was no pre-existing matter from which God formed the world, nor is the world just an extension and formation of God's own being into a physical plane, as it were. That is to say, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo simultaneously refutes pantheism and dualism. Dualism says there's another ultimate reality besides God, in this case matter. Pantheism says all that exists is an expression of, or is part and parcel of God. Both of those doctrines are refuted by the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Do we have time to refute evolution? Sure we do. It's not a very challenging thesis in the first place, if you study it seriously. 
Let me tell you why the doctrine of evolution is not worthy of an intelligent man's faith. In the first place, absurd miracles have to be believed in order to believe the doctrine of evolution. For instance, we have to believe that at one time there was nothing and then boom, there was something. Now, not that there was a God who created out of nothing, but that at one time there was nothing and then there was something. Or, of course, you know, the, the other denomination of the evolutionary faith says the world of matter always existed. So we don't have to have that first miracle. But then, whether you have denomination one or denomination two among the evolutionists, they all have to say that this world of matter all of a sudden became organic. How? Beats off. And then the organic world became intelligent. How did it do that? Beats us. And then the intelligent world became moral. How did it do that? Beats us. Matter came out of non-matter. Life came out of non-life. Intelligence came out of non-intelligence. And morality came out of non-morality. That's a long series of really, really leaps, big leaps of faith, I think. I like to turn the tables on those who ridicule my faith, you know, and the God who Christians, it takes a lot of faith to believe in evolution, let me tell you. You have to believe a lot of absurd miracles. Moreover, the doctrine of evolution has more and more been seen as a useless tautology in our day. A tautology, an assertion simply of a definitional truth. For years, evolution has taught what is called the survival of the fittest. The doctrine of the survival of the fittest can be proven or can be subject to scientific proof only if there is an independent way to identify the fittest and the survivors. The difficulty is evolutionists always want to say that it's the survivors that are the fittest, and then they teach that it's the fittest that survive. It's just the circular definition put forth in the name of a scientific hypothesis, which is really beyond all proof anyway. Evolution has a great deal of difficulty reconciling itself with the law of entropy, that the universe tends toward disorder and a lack of heat, if you will, rather than um, to arbitrary and unexplained increases in order and intensities of heat. The doctrine of evolution has problems with its mechanism. For years, mutations were supposed to account for evolutionary progress. The problem being that well over 99% of all mutations in living organisms are detrimental to the organism. In fact, most mutations prove to be lethal to the organism. And so we have problems with the laws of entropy. We have problems with absurd miracles, problems with you know, the very thesis itself, whether it's stating a scientific, uh, uh, making a scientific claim. We have problems with mechanism, problems with time and statistics as well. You know, those who have formally believed the doctrine of evolution back in the late 60s, did statistical work. You know, this is, this is really beyond, you know, this lowly philosopher's mind to go into the details of statistics and probability theory. But having done work on statistics and probability theory, the reply of these men who believed in evolution at the time was there wasn't nearly enough time available, even in the most generous view of the age in the universe for a chance development of the world as we now know it. Great statistical problems, various biological problems. Lately, a book on the chemistry of DNA has come out which, which demonstrates that it's impossible from an evolutionary standpoint for what we know as DNA to have developed. 
it's kind of, I mean, I'm giving you a pedestrian answer. Half of DNA doesn't get you anywhere close to DNA. You just can't get there, you know, step by step by step. And so there are just tremendous problems with the doctrine of evolution. But, you know, I've really set you up, because I went through all those, because what I want to say is that's not the biggest problem with the doctrine of evolution. Because you see, in the end, the doctrine of evolution over against the doctrine of creation cannot be settled scientifically. I'm not above embarrassing those who arrogantly think science supports evolution. We use reductio ad absurdums and ad hominem techniques. That is, we try to show that they're embarrassed by their own techniques when they try to defend the doctrine of evolution. But you see, the basic uh, refutation of evolution is not scientific, it's theological. And why is that? Because when it comes to the doctrine of origins, now all of you can follow this, and it is a sophisticated point, there's only three ways in which we can know about how the world came into being. Either God tells us, revelation, or we believe what we do on the basis of speculation, we don't know for sure, but we kind of contrive our own theory by which the world came into being, or you know it scientifically. You go out there and you have provable or at least testable hypotheses and so forth. But of course, a testable hypothesis presupposes repeatability. But in the nature of the case, origins can't be repeated. And therefore, science is ultimately of no value in proving how the world came into being. What are you left with then? Revelation or speculation? Of course, if it's speculation, then it's everyone to himself, you know? You've got your idea, I have mine. But if God reveals to us the nature of origins, then we're on a solid foundation. Revelation rules out a visible basis for the present world, and it does so in Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God, so that what is seen hath not been made out of things which appear. The visible world is without visible antecedents. And so we have it on the basis of God's infallible revelation. The doctrine of evolution tells us the world as we see it developed out of the world that we see. And Hebrews denies that categorically. And so the lesson that we learn, and with this we'll close on time tonight, the lesson we learn from Hebrews 11.3 is that the visible world points to the invisible creator. Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being perceived through the things which are made. You know what we perceive when we look at the things that are made? The invisible things of him. When we look at the visible world, the conclusion we are driven to is that the invisible creator made it. The doctrine of creation presented in Hebrews 11.3 will prove to be foundational, I think, to the faith exercised in the promises of God of which we'll read in our next lesson and lessons following it. Okay, real quick, any questions? Bob? It seems to me that that verse does prove a deal with an established creation. How does it differ? Well, technically what the verse says is that the visible world did not originate from anything that's visible. Okay. Now, someone could say, well, that leaves the door open to it originating from invisible realities. 
there may be something else, but it just was an invisible something else from which the world was made. But, of course, my, what I did, I tried to successively cut that down. So the only thing that's left is the invisible God or the power of the invisible God. You had a second question? Yeah. Uh, think of the triad of, of faith, hope, and love. Seems to me one of our problems in the church today is we, we have a lack of faith and we have a lack of hope. Can you relate those two? Well, you have a lack of love, too. Well, yes, I know that. But uh, I'm thinking of the kind of hopeless, hopeless, despairing kind of yeah. um, posture. Which, well, I think I see where you're pointing. Let me say, first of all. Okay, yeah, you want to know an order of uh, what do you need in order to have the others. I want to suggest to you that you don't have an automatic priority, that it's out of love for God that we trust him more, and in trusting him we learn to love him more. And it's because, uh, but there's a sense in which you say, I couldn't hope in the promises of God if I didn't believe the promises of God, if I didn't have faith. And yet, on the other hand, a person who says, well, I believe the promises of God, but I have no confidence about them, and say he has no hope, they are uh, probably best seen as different perspectives on the same Christian character, faith, hope, and love, just different things come to the forefront. Uh, Paul says the greatest of these is love. But you have to understand that elsewhere, Paul says the greatest of them is hope. And elsewhere, the, it may not be put in that language, but it's the greatest is faith. And so, in terms of the dynamic or the problem that Paul's dealing with in Corinthians, love is that aspect of Christian character that comes to the forefront. Elsewhere, it's hope. In the face of persecution, hope is crucial. In the face of skepticism, faith is crucial. There's um, an analogy uh, to that and then the question, what's the most important thing in life? Is it air or is it water? And so you say, well, air is the most important because you can only go a few minutes without air. Maybe so. But if you don't have any water, the importance of air becomes nothing. That's right. They, um, in a sense, what we're saying is if you isolate any of those three so that you're talking about it by itself, it's worthless. You have to have faith, hope, and love. Okay, John? By the way, we're having open forum tomorrow evening. Thanks for the advertisement. <laughs> Do you have a question for us, John? Well, sure, in the sense that it's legitimate to differentiate between the creator and what he created. Well, conceptually, if you, if you call the created realm nature, and you mean by that mother nature or some kind of powers inherent in the physical world which make it run the way that it does, then of course the concepts are in conflict. But I do think we can say that which goes beyond our natural or if you will, regular experience is God and his power. And what God and his power made is the natural world, meaning the world as we ordinarily experience it. There's more questions. I mean, according to the Bible, it seems to me 
He is. That's why I don't believe in natural laws. It's been deified into a force by itself. Well, I think there's a difference between calling into being that which did not previously exist and sustaining in existence that which has been created. So upholding all things by the word of his power does not mean he's continuously creating things. It does mean that that which was created would not exist, would not continue to exist without his providential support. Sure we can. We do say that. We say that God upholds the world. He's got the whole world in his hand. Well, if you understand physical research and science as studying the regularities with which God upholds the world, then it's very legitimate. If you understand it as studying something which has nothing to do with God, then you're in the wrong worldview. Terry. In some of those cases, God did speak in a way which goes beyond just reading his word. That's true. In other cases, the examples are of people who believed what the messengers of God said or believed what is basically a written message. Both are true. Ah! Ah! <laughs> that's a fallacy, Terry. A fallacy. You know how you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I gotta kill this one before it goes any further. <laughs> you know how you know that's a fallacy? Because when Jesus himself spoke, people crucified him for what he had to say. You stop and think about that. The fact that God was directly speaking did not make it easier to believe, in some cases, made it harder. And Jesus said, about the great things that he did, that those who have faith in him would do even greater. And so, you know, we've got it backwards. We sometimes think that if Jesus were here on earth speaking, that would make things easier. Jesus said, behold, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's a legitimate concern. Am I just kind of drumming up this hope, you know, out of nothing, as it were, or is there a solid foundation in God's Word on which I can pin my hope? And you need to study God's Word to know the answer to that. But I don't believe that your faith would be increased if God spoke it out loud to you. I really don't. Because in the days where God did that sort of thing, people were terribly faithless. And it's not until Jesus went away and the canon was closed and the Holy Spirit was given that we see a great outpouring of the power of God unto faith. And uh, I can't explain all the dynamics of that, but if we believe the phenomena that is presented in the Bible, the fact that God spoke did not make people faithful. Just look at the experience of the children of Israel wandering in the desert. God repeatedly spoke and manifested himself in mighty miracles. And they still refused to believe and trust him. 
Hebrews tells us, for lack of faith, they did not press into the promised land. Kathy? Basically. Yeah, you have to add a nuance to that. You have to remember that um, those in Louisiana on the Balanced Treatment Act were arguing that if evolutionary theory is going to be presented, then creation science needed to be presented as well, equal treatment sort of thing. And they were attacked, and here's the crucial point, they were attacked and those who were attacking them were saying, what you're presenting is not science, it's religion. And you can't mix science and religion in the classroom. And so that was the tack taken. And what the lawyers wanted to do, they had good hearts and good intentions, but I think their strategy was poorly conceived. What they wanted to do is go in there and to show, hey, we can match facts for facts with you. We can do science as well as you can. And I said, no, don't you understand? They're attacking you, saying you've got a religious foundation. You need to come back and say, so do you. And so that the answer is what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If you want to throw out all philosophical or religious foundations, then don't teach evolution either. But if you're going to teach evolution, which has these kind of philosophical roots, then allow creation to be taught as well. And so you see that threw them. They didn't quite understand where their expert witness was coming from on that point. But the ACLU lawyers did. They stopped it and went off record and said they were just stymied. They didn't know what to do with that argument. But it never, you know what happened, of course, sadly, in that case, the judge gave summary judgment. We never got the trial on it. But um, unfortunately, most of the Christians that are taking the most bold and public stand for creationism today, as good as they are on the scientific evidences, think that the case rests on scientific evidences. And they need to learn philosophical apologetics because that ultimately is where it's decided. And on that basis, we could beat the ACLU hands down. Because what we could say is, you're not bringing pure observation into the science classroom either. And therefore, you have a, a worldview to which you're ultimately committed, what we'll call a religion. Now, you don't have a temple that you go into. Most people don't bow down to the atomic mass, you know, and sing hymns to the power of energy or something like that. But the fact of the matter is you do have a religious commitment, an ultimate commitment that governs your life and your way of seeing the world and man's place in it. Um, well, but i got to let others have a chance here, John, so we'll let Chris. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it, well, of course, that is one of the legitimate inferences from the verse that those who don't have faith in God cannot please him. Hebrews 11 says that, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So whatever's not of faith is sin. But in the specific place in Romans 14 where Paul says that, he's referring to those who eat meats with a troubled conscience. They can't eat it in full faith. And he says, therefore, you're sinning. 
because you're not doing it in full faith toward God. Okay, John, real quick. Well, I'm just wondering, is gravity caused by angels or by natural laws that are set in motion not worried about? Well, it's not caused by natural laws that he sets in order and doesn't worry about in the sense that he wound up the universe and stepped back and now it's running. Okay, so I've already denied that. Now, whether gravity is caused by angels is a theological speculation that goes beyond the warrant of Scripture, I believe. I, I would say gravity in some cases, or maybe in all cases, is due to angels, but the Bible doesn't say so. It does say that he uses angels in the physical world to carry out his will, but God could also himself directly, by his own providential hand, to use that anthropomorphism, could be causing gravity to operate as we, or for the world to operate according to the laws of gravity that we summarize it as operating by. Yes, well, if it came out of Tyler, look at it twice. Martha. Yeah, that's why I ended my lesson on that verse. It seems to me that's kind of... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I ended right there because what I was saying is, in a sense, Romans 1.11 summarizes this, not with exactly the same Greek vocabulary, but it says the invisible things of God are seen through the visible world. So... Oh, to talk about atoms? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a halfway house to the truth because what it's really pointing to is the invisible power of God himself. But your science teacher is an example, then, of someone who says, who takes the RSV translation, the visible world was made out of invisible things, namely atoms. We need to close with a word of prayer. Chris, would you do that for us?